Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Um, just uh, as way of background, let me uh, sort of situate uh, you where we are in the book. So for the last several weeks, we've been examining the chapters of Revelation focusing on the seven-sealed scroll or book in God's hand uh, that, if you remember, could only be opened by the Lamb who ransomed God's people with his blood. So in chapter 6, the first six seals of that scroll were broken, and the first four uh, brought what we sometimes refer to as the four horsemen, conquest, war, famine, pestilential death. The fifth seal had the martyred saints beneath the altar crying out, How long? Um, and God replying, A little while uh, yet. The sixth seal, uh, and that's the final seal that we've seen so far, uh, showed uh, the people of the earth, from the rich and powerful, the ruler, down to the poor slave, all fleeing and hiding before the wrath of God. That is, as we saw, um, was an undoing of creation. Heavens being rolled up like a scroll, mountains dissolving. So that's where we left with the, un, with the breaking of the seals. And then chapter 7 is sort of a, a parenthesis that, that looks at, um, at God's action of sealing his particular uh, saints in the midst of, uh, or of these calamities or sealing them from some of these calamities. And in chapter 7 last week, uh, we uh, sort of culminated with this innumerable throng of saints standing before God, worshiping because their robes had been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. So chapter 6 was focused on the, un or the breaking of the seals, and chapter 7 was focused on the sealing of God's people. So today we return back to the seals to see the results of that final seal being broken, and then we see a new series of seven start. That was hard to say. A new series of seven start. Um, with uh, the seven trumpets uh, being revealed. So I'm actually, just to, to give a little segue from the last seal, I'm going to just read the opening of the sixth seal from chapter 6 and then start into chapter 8 with the opening of the final seal. So Revelation 6, 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, who, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light may, might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe, woe, to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Thus far, uh, God's word, uh, let's look to him in prayer and ask him to uh, increase its hearing uh, in our ears and hearts. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do come this day to worship you and to acknowledge your sovereignty and your control and your power over all things on heaven and earth. Lord God, as we study uh, this passage today, give us that sense of the weight of your righteous judgment, the sovereignty over you, over human history, but also help us beware of the power you give to us as your people to serve you on earth, but to also speak to you. As we study your word today, uh, we are amazed that the God of the universe deigned to speak to us, condescended to reveal yourself to us. But even more, we are amazed that you condescended, you deigned that we could speak to you and that you uh, listen and act upon the prayers of your saints. So often we don't think of prayer having that kind of power. Help us be aware of the role you've given to your people to participate not only in human history, but in its culmination. Teach us now by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see. 
Give us ears to hear. Give us uh, wills to enact these things that you instruct us. By the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, so the heaven we've seen thus far in John's uh, book of Revelation has been, well, it's been a noisy place. <laughs> it's been loud. It's uh, a, lot, a lot going on uh, audibly. So when we get to the seventh seal, silence. So what does silence mean? Um, and we can, can do it either way. Uh, we can either do what does silence mean here, or what does silence in the Bible generally indicate? But overall, what does silence? What does silence mean? Okay, so we can look at silence in sort of um, a, almost a literary kind of device. You know, um, uh, one commentator said this is a pregnant pause, you know, that kind of, you know, for pause, you know. You get those kinds of stage instructions, pause for effect, you know. You know this could be that kind of dramatic pause to transition from one thing to the next. Yeah, so we see silence um, can be in the sense of, of God suspending revelation. Um, a silent heaven is, is not a good thing. <laughs> you know, we want to hear uh, God speaking uh, to us. So uh, some, uh, you know, we can see that in scriptures in general, but some have interpreted this, that this is some kind of cessation of revelation, that God has stopped speaking. Okay, a time of contemplation, um, and in particular, people often say, you know, uh, it's sort of contemplation of what this means. You know, we've just broken the seventh seal, which sort of is the culmination of history. You know, this is it. So, uh, to take this moment to um, to reflect, to literally be sort of awestruck that it's over. Yeah, Doug. Well, what strikes me is that it's only half an hour. Um, you know, we had 400 years in the intertestamental period between the last prophet and the coming of Christ. And if a day is like a thousand years, half an hour is not very long. So to contemplate, you better take a breath and do it quickly. Because it's just basic, I think it's just to catch your breath. Okay. And boom. And especially, um, uh, uh, so we can. Well, I want us to think about half an hour because it's a, it's really sort of a strange time. The the normal phrase that we'll see throughout Revelation is the hour of judgment. That's the moment we're referred to again and and again. So in that half an hour is as as Doug says, it's just sort of a. You know, it's not a long pause <laughs> in the ultimate scheme of things. It's sort of a, a brief pause um, or sort of um, might indicate sort of, a, as Ronnie said, a transition, an in-between kind of moment. Yeah, I, that sort of gasp. Um, uh, so uh, it's um, uh, this kind of fearful almost reaction to, you know, so rather than exhaling, Sound you're inhaling silence. Yeah, it's uh, it's about to get noisy again, <laughs> um, and you know, and as we see it, um, you know, I'm going to suggest to you that um, we're sort of uh, in this kind of cyclical pattern in Revelation. So we're sort of going back, and you know, we're not 
you know, it's, it's not a, a linear pattern that, that John's giving us. He's repeating, going back to themes, but it's sort of each repetition, it's getting stronger and more dramatic. So, um, you know, in this case, that kind of silence emphasizes it's about to get louder in that sense. Okay, um, and on that, um, that's when I particularly want us to come back and think, um, you know, what it is. <laughs> so, you know, what it is that's coming. So if silence is indicating something's coming, what, what is it? Anything else? Yeah. Time is an interesting thing because it, it, it only is what it is, but it can, you can sometimes have the sensation that it's longer or shorter than it is. For instance, you know, I was rear-ended a few years ago on Storrow Drive, and I saw the guy coming, and I saw he wasn't going to stop, and there was nothing I could do about it. And it was only a, a, a matter of seconds, but it felt like minutes, because it almost like it unfolded in slow motion. And I think we all have experiences that, that hit us, and, and they unfold at a different, it seems like a different time than it actually is. Yeah, and notice that John is using, you know, uh, it, it's very kind of for about half an hour. I mean, it, you know, the about he's using there can, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not precise. <laughs> he doesn't got the. <laughs> Yeah, from his perspective, you know, it seemed like, you know, man, this is a long silence. It might have been for a half an hour. So, um, so yeah, so perception-wise, I, I don't think we should think of it as, you know, we're not talking about stopwatch time. It's significant enough to mention it. Yeah, and I think um, it, it brings attention to the silence. I mean, for whatever period, you know, he is, it's silent for, you know, a significant amount of time. Um, and that draws attention to the silence and what that silence means. Um, I want to turn to a couple of, of scriptures in the Old Testament um, to, to sort of sketch you know, um, the association of silence, particularly with judgment. So flip with me first to Psalm 31. So th Psalm 31, and I'll pick up reading in verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. So here we see this uh, in this psalm, uh, this prayer of the psalmist um, to uh, uh, acknowledging that his life is in God's hands, that salvation is from God, um, that uh, he is going to look favorably upon his servant because of God's steadfast love, but then asking that the wicked... You know, be put to shame, they, that they'll be muted, that their judgment will render them silent, which is a theme throughout the Old Testament. One of the major um, accompaniments of silence in the Old Testament is judgment. Um, while we're flipping, uh, let's flip to the Minor Prophets, uh, in this case to Habakkuk. 
which if you have a pew Bible, is on 786 is the passage that we'll be looking at. So in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, um, the, the prophet is uh, calling down woe upon the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Um, so he's, he's, you know, the repetition has been woe, woe, woe to them, woe to them, woe to him. Um, but it, the chapter ends with this verse uh, 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now I, maybe Doug, that's a piece of music. Yeah, it's a... Choral response that we often churches sing before pastoral prayer. And I always, I, I, and I've heard it not just before pastoral prayer, but I've heard it used as a call to worship. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I couldn't remember which, which church I was in that a call to worship. Maybe, maybe it's a time at Duke. Yeah, must be. Yeah, there's some church I've been that, is, that it's the sort of call to worship. But um, I was really struck when I was looking at this passage uh, yesterday. Like, wait a minute, this is a pronouncement of judgment. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how we... <laughs> The, the, call, the call to silence there isn't sort of silence, get ready to worship. It's in the face of God's righteous judgment. The earth is silent. Um, humanity is rendered mute. We have nothing to say. Um, you know, it's this uh, equation of silence with judgment. Um, we won't flip there, but I'll just, uh, uh, I've got it typed out. Um, Zechariah has a very uh, similar kind of, again, um, after pronouncing prophecy against Babylon, um, he, he comes to this, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So um, I want to suggest that the silence that we see in Revelation is picking up on these Old Testament passages. So the emphasis is on the horror of divine judgment which silences sinful humanity. No one can articulate a response to the seventh seal. And notice, um, I, I didn't read the, the, first, the fifth seal in chapter 6, but both the fifth seal and the sixth seal involved speaking. So the fifth seal was the martyrs crying out from the altar, um, crying out, how long? You know, how long before you avenge? And then the sixth seal was, you know, these other people fleeing before God, crying out, who can stand? The seventh seal, there's no need for the saints to cry out how long anymore. And now that the wrath of God has come, uh, the earth is rendered mute. Um, so to sort of see, we've had people speaking, people speaking, nothing. <laughs> um, we've hit... Uh, the ultimate judgment. So, you know, that's a sign that sometimes you get people interpret the silence the, or the seventh seal and the silence accompanying it to mean the seventh seal uh, is nothing or, you know, is devoid of content and that the following chapters 
reveal that specific content of the seventh seal, I want to suggest to you the silence in itself is revelatory. It's not an absence of revelation. It is a profound moment of revelation. The silence in itself indicates judgment is here, that now all the earth has been rendered mute. Okay, anything on science? All right, so now we, we have these sort of transitionary verses um, that accompany uh, this silence. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So that's anticipating the next section. And another angel came out, stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayer of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So what do these verses teach us about prayer? I mean, here we've had all this emphasis on an angel doing this, an angel doing that. We still have angels doing things, but now they're doing things with human prayers. What do you think this tells us about prayer? Yeah, so in a couple, notice that the prayers, uh, it's, uh, for some reason, maybe because I was cooking while I was doing this, um, I was thinking it's, it's a recipe, so you, you know, one, take prayers, two, add sense, and sense, three, you know. Take fire results, you know, but it's it's the way the prayers are, uh, as Jerry said, uh, collected, maintained, but also the way incense um, uh, always accompanies sacrifice to make the sacrifice a pleasing aroma before God. So it's it's the way the um, added to these prayers is is this this incense that helps uh, cleanse them, purify them. Yeah, the incense uh, going to going into God's presence. Um, let me. Uh, I'm in a flipping mood today for some reason. Um, let's flip to Leviticus um, because in Leviticus uh, the pattern is repeated of how incense is used in the temple. So Leviticus chapter 16 is this is one example of this. So uh, this is the Day of the Atonement. So we could look to sort of other kinds of sacrifices and see sort of the daily use of incense. But um, I was just struck that a lot of the same language that we see in Revelation 8 uh, is, is used in, in, in Leviticus 16. So starting in verse 12. Uh, I'll start actually 11, um, just because it starts the paragraph. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die." 
So here we see um, you know, Aaron bringing in the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he's literally filling the Holy of Holies with incense so he can enter into that uh, place of God's presence, that mercy seat. So incense uh, is a symbol showing that prayers are accompanied uh, or associated with sacrifice, that this is an altar scene. Yeah, Andy, were you going to say something? Or you're just, you're bidding there, you didn't know it. Um, so what, it, I mean, what does that tell us about prayer? So it's, it's being offered up to God, it's, it's associated with sacrifice. What are the effects? Maybe that might be the better question to ask. What are the effects of that prayer? So prayer plus incense equals what? <laughs> yeah, Mark. Yeah, we had that analogy earlier, that prayer likened to incense. But here they're sort of, you know, it's mixed together in a sense. Uh, yeah, that it's this, uh, this prayer is not repugnant to God, but it's pleasing to God. Um, that this is, uh, this isn't just sort of, you know, Lord, may the Duke Blue Devils win at 12.30 today against the UNC Tar Heels, which... <laughs> That might be more of a serious prayer than I'm letting on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's this kind of holy prayer. Um, again, to sort of think of the, that scene with Aaron. You know, it's, uh, it's, he's in the holy place. So this isn't just sort of prayer tossed up, unthinking. This is sanctified prayer in a sense. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the picture I think we're given. That this, this prayer uh, goes up to God and then it comes back to earth. Um, and this is uh, one of the books I've mentioned before that I've been using in, in sort of my study of the book of Revelation. It's a book by Eugene Peterson called Reversed Thunder. And this is where he gets that, that title uh, of his book. is from this, this image of prayer going up to God and thunder coming back. So, you know, prayer in a sense is the reverse thunder. Um, you know, it goes up and then God acts. Um, that is a powerful picture. Yeah, Mark. I, um, I think, um, I mean, the, the request, I mean, I, 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 we start with the most immediate um, prayer and the most immediate request we've seen is in that uh, fifth seal um, at the same place. So we were at an altar. Um, so if you flip to chapter six, uh, verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Um, so, I, so I think we start there. Um, it's at least... At the very least, God is hearing that prayer. And I think it's striking that we're at that same place. We're at an altar. Um, and though the place where people were at the altar crying out for God, praying to God, and it's at the altar that that response of God comes. Um, so at the very least, um, it's that prayer. Um, but I think it makes us think about 
prayer overall. Um, so I think we can sort of think about that specific kind of, um, of prayer that, you know, how long prayer. But I mean, it, it makes us think about prayer in general. Yeah, we're, and we're about to see with the trumpets a sort of um, series of, uh, well, it's depicted as a series of natural disasters, you know, um, you know, earth being burned up and water being turned into blood and, you know, this sort of, un but it's being described, those, at least those initial ones, are being described in partial terms. But this is the ultimate judgment of God coming, as Mike's saying, the, you know, God is finally fully going to make his sovereignty uh, known through the righteous judgment of wicked people. It's through, so, you know, you're on safe grounds in a sense to pray that. But we, you know, I, at least I, have never sort of thought of that kind of prayer having this kind of effect. And that phrase, um, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, that's going to be John's um, sort of, uh, he's going to repeat that phrase. He's going to repeat it again at the end of the seven trumpets. He's going to repeat it later at the end of the seven bowls. That's the phrase that always accompanies the last judgment. So it's, uh, I, I don't think of my prayer <laughs> contributing to the final judgment of the earth. Um, and that seems to be the kind of picture we're given here of, you know, this cry out for how long and, you know, Lord God, you know, when are you going to make your righteousness known to all mankind? Man, that's going to come back. <laughs> um, is that the way you think of prayer? Is that the way we should think of prayer? Uh, I'm, trying, I'm struggling with this. Yeah. Yeah, it's pure, again, the sort of purity of it. Uh, you know, as Mike said, it's, you know, the prayer isn't so much, and we talked about this when we, you know, that some people are like, oh, this can't be a Christian prayer because it, people are calling for vengeance. But they're not calling for personal vengeance. They're calling for the character of God to be defended. And that's what purifies it. It's prayer that focuses on God, which is, which is worship. You know, focusing on who God is and what he does. So it's, it's that prayer that isn't concerned with us, which I confess so much of my prayer is and my concerns, but it's prayer that is focused on God, who God is, what God's doing, and saying, thy will be done. Um, and... Again, it's that sort of scary thing. Uh, I don't think we think in terms, you know, we say it every week, you know. Not my will, thy will be done. Do we think, <laughs> you know, wow. Um, in this case, as we see the end of human history, thy will be done is pretty terrifying. Um, at least terrifying if we're not covered with the blood of the Lamb. Um, but... It's judgment coming back to the earth. So our worship, in a sense, is participating. Other things about these verses. What do you think of that image of censors of prayer coming up, censors of judgment coming back down? Yeah. That image is there. Yeah, and again, um, it's the, the, the language you know, really evokes symbols that we're familiar with. Um, you know, it, when I first read through chapter 8 this week, I was like, 
now I know why my friend Bebo said, so are you going to plan the Revelation study so it ends after chapter 7? <laughs> you know, do half a chapter a week after 14 weeks, you're done. And, um, you know, because the language is starting to get, um, you know, sort of um, more, well, more, not bizarre, but, you know, more sort of... Um, yeah, bizarre, sort of more bizarre. But as I looked at it and, you know, the symbols that are being employed aren't that strange. It's just that it's being, coming to us in a very kind of strange, or to us, strange kind of presentation. But if we look at the symbols that are being unfolded, it, the language like thunder for God's judgment should not be that surprising. Yeah, and several things you said there are powerful, uh, effective um, you know, participating in human history. Uh, I, I used to, in seminary, we, for our senior year, we, my classmates and I, we preached to each other, um, and then we judged each other's sermons. And I just remember a phrase like, if I hear another application that I need to pray more, I'm going to go hang myself, you know. But, so I, sort of those words were coming back to me this week, sort of like, because I've just been struck by, you know, the power of prayer as it's being shown here. That this prayer is, is um, part of God's unfolding and bringing to an end human history. And that prayer has powerful effect. Um, again, that... <laughs> You know, when I throw up prayer before, you know, various times a day, before meals, before bedtime, you know, here, there, you know, I, it's not, I'm not thinking of that prayer as, as being unleashing power or having the potential um, to have kinetic force later on. Um, it, it, so thinking about this passage as really sort of, you know, made me pause and think about prayer and its effects. Yeah, and to think that's, ex you know, as we talked about earlier, that's exactly the situation of John's original hearers, to be in that persecuted uh, situation. So how much more these words are going to resonate to them? Um, I, you know, and so in our sort of, you know, uh, weak kind of, you know, oh, you know, my coworker said something negative about Jesus, and you know, or you know, did this or that, and you know, the kind of mild things that we often experience, as opposed to the kind of severe, open persecution that we see in many parts of the world. But you know, so think. I think you're absolutely right. If we think it resonates with us, how much more does it resonate with people, you know, undergoing actual persecution? Yeah, and notice the. I'm glad you 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 know brought us to that psalm. And man, where'd the time go? So we'll do the trumpets next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> good, I can put them off for a week. No, <laughs> he's ready for the trumpets. Good. I'm hoping our trumpeter can explain uh, what trumpets symbolize for us. Um, he should know this. Uh, but to, to, to think about um, both with the silence, um, I suggested, but definitely with the prayers, where are we? We're in the temple 
you know, we're uh, silence in the holy temple of God. And here we see the prayers of the saints being offered up uh, to God at that moment. Um, you know, again, I, it used to drive me, you know, prayer has power or the importance of worship. But I think that's exactly John's point that's coming through here is uh, in the presence of a the righteous judgment of God, sinful humanity has fallen in the silence, the pr- but the prayers of the saints are finally and ultimately answered. Um, we, we have this role of participating in God's judgment on the earth through our prayer and worship. Um, and that, again, it's, I don't think, or at least for me, that's not often the way I enter into the 11 o'clock worship service. Um, you know, I, even those times I've entered into the 11 o'clock worship service, you know, going in with this uh, choir singing, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Notice I didn't try to sing it for you. Um, it's because you, I want the Sunday school class to end well. Um, but that, you know, that to think of those words as accompanying God's, in, in, in the case of a bucket, accompanying uh, God's judgment on the Babylonians, that he's going to bring them to an end. And here, that silence accompanying God's final judgment on humanity um, uh, it, you know, it makes us step into the worship of God. It makes us step into prayer with a different mindset. Um, and it's a mindset, again, that, that takes the focus off our petty kind of everyday problems and concerns and focuses them on the ultimate reality of a God who's going to come judge the earth in his righteous indignation. And as we saw last week, our only hope of standing in the presence of that righteous indignation is being sealed, is having, the, be, having our robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, so, uh, so this brings us to the close of our seven seals and of our time this morning. Um, but we're, you know, as we saw in the chapter, this we're moving into what's going to happen next, and it's an in, with the trumpets, it's an intensification of God's uh, acting in human history. Um, the judgments are going to become uh, more dramatic and severe. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a bad call to worship. <laughs> because it, yeah. it prepares us for what we all deserve and now we hear the gospel yeah, and it's uh, and I didn't mean to say it was a bad call of worship. Is yeah, it's it's the way I've always sort of okay, you know that kind of and you know I'll do it. I've got announcements today. I'll do it. You know, let's prepare us for you know quiet down. Let's prepare ourselves for worship. And I've always sort of taken that that you know those words, but to think about it as in the presence of a righteous God who's going to judge the earth with his his wrath. Um, that is, I think. A, a good call to worship because, you know, in that moment of worship, we acknowledge that we are deserving of that wrath and we look to the one who can, can clothe us and cleanse us uh, to seal us from it. Almighty God, these chapters of uh, your revelation to John uh, remind us of the righteousness of your judgments 
and your power and sovereignty over human history. Um, uh, this week, uh, we have seen um, terrible calamity befall humanity through the forms of earthquake and flood. We should not take these things lightly. We do not confess to know what you're doing uh, in these uh, disasters, but we acknowledge your power over them. And we acknowledge your mercy in this time. Uh, just thinking about the newscasters this week saying how earthquakes of these size, this size happen 20 times a year. But only a couple hit places of human habitation. So even in the midst of, of calamity, we're reminded of your mercy of your uh, restraining hand that you do not pour out on the earth at this moment the wrath, the righteous judgment that we deserve, that you refrain from unleashing the cup of your wrath to the full. And we come as a people um, knowing that we are clothed by the one who was willing to undeservedly drink the cup of your wrath and drink it to the dregs that we might be able to stand in your presence and to worship. Lord God, give us that sense of our participation in your kingdom in our worship and prayer that we are not just throwing up empty words, but when we direct our prayers to you, that your will be done, that that is not an empty act. That's not uh, an act that's just sort of superfluous to human history, but that is deep participation in bringing things to their ultimate consummation. Give us that attitude now, in the coming hour, as we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.